The Pinball Network is online. Launching. Silverball Chronicles. You can send that in to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. And we won't read it. And we, we, don't, we don't read that stuff. That's a waste of time. Hello, everyone. I'm David Dennis, and this is Pinball Chronicles. And with me is my co-host, Ron. How you doing, Hallett? I'm doing just peachy. Just peachy. That's great. Have you had any uh, feedback so far, fella, about our first uh, our first episode? They like us. Yeah, people thought we did an okay job, which is which is really great. We've made a couple of adjustments, uh, but. I think this episode is going to really play out. I think it's going to play out really well. I'm really excited to uh, to get this going. I've been looking forward to this for a couple of weeks. But as you know, we are on a monthly schedule. That gives us a little more time for research and editing. Plus, it gives us a little bit of time out uh, to not sort of get burnt out. Isn't that right? That is that is correct. That is very yeah. correct. You've been super busy in the last uh, couple of uh, last couple of weeks. You've actually put out two Slam Tilt podcasts. Yes, we have. What, who's that guy? What's that? What's your other guy's name? What's his? Is a Brian? What's his um, name? It it starts with a B, but it's not Brian. It's Bruce. It's not Brian. It's it, Bruce. Are you sure it's Bruce? I'm sure it's Bruce. Okay. Well, anyway, that he's okay. He's doing pretty good on, okay. on that he's podcast, okay. which is nice. But uh, you're of course tying it all together on your other podcast, the Slam Tilt Podcast. But uh, I'm glad I could steal you away this evening to jump into uh, this week's topic. One that I think you hold very dear to your heart. That I do. I was very excited when I, when I learned what our next topic would be. Well, you requested specifically that we do this on the next episode. That was part of your contract to oh, bring you aboard. Okay. That, that we continue to hyperinflate the Stern Electronics secondary market. And that was something that you specifically put forward. Uh, sure. Yeah, so that's our topic this week. But before we get into that, Ron, this episode is brought to you by a bash toy and two ramps. A bash toy and two ramps. Really, though? What else do you need? That's what John Borg says. Big sponsor this week. Big, big, big sponsor this week. We've got a couple of uh, of housekeeping items from our previous episode, which was Steve Ritchie before the mullet. We always take corrections from our mailbag at silverballchronicles at gmail.com. Is, is that the name? Did we change something? Nope. Everything is exactly the same as it was before. Silverballchronicles at gmail.com. If you want to get a hold of us, please send us a message. So we did get uh, some feedback from the one, the only, Dennis Creasel. He wrote in because he actually wrote an article in the Pinball News, and that article spoke specifically about Atari Pinball. I think it was you, Ron. You posed the question as to why did Atari choose wide bodies? Yep, all their games were wide bodies. All their games were wide bodies. And Dennis wrote in, simply, it was money. And then he linked to an article. I've put that in the show notes, so if you want to go back and read that. He also wrote down his sourcing. He quoted Nolan Bushnell from Atari, and he said, I felt we could make a business, meaning pinball but we couldn't do commodity pinball one that looked like it was the same as everybody else so we created wide bodies and these various other innovations which allowed us to price them anywhere we wanted Uh, they definitely look different they innovated mechs that no one used except them i guess you could say they took risks 
and they could have paid off, but they certainly didn't. No, they had like, what was it called? Rotary solenoids or some other stuff that, yeah. And there are circuit boards at the bottom of the cabinet and other wonderful innovations that they did. Yeah, you can't you can't hear my hand in my face, but uh, that's what I'm doing at the moment. So uh, one, of, one of the other bits of feedback that we actually got was on my sourcing of, uh, of what I'm referencing as we go through the episode. Some people wanted to dive a little bit deeper into some of that sourcing. So you will see in your podcatcher much deeper, much more pointed uh, sourcing inside of those show notes. So uh, I wanted to make sure that I updated that. And we'll move on to the next bit, some feedback from the first episode. Ron, do you want to read through some of that feedback? Sure, I'll read some of the feedback. Glenn says, loved it. Can't wait until you get the other 42 episodes of material you said you'd get in another episode. Okay. Thank you so much, Glenn, you douche. (laughs) Wow. Hey, he started it. (laughs) He started it. Danny from Virginia said, I thoroughly enjoyed the new show. I run between 80 and 100 miles a week, and it's great to have new content to get through the miles. Runs 80 to 100 miles a week. So suffice it to say, Danny's cardio is probably vastly superior to either of ours. No, I think he means he's like in a, in a vehicle or a truck doing like no, delivery. No, it says run. I think you're taking him a little too I'll literal. I'll take it completely run. literally. Okay. Tim <laughs> says, I am really enjoying the Silverball Chronicles podcast. Oh, thank you, Tim. Thanks so much. Um, also, no one wrote in last week about the book that I couldn't remember. Remember I said that everybody read this book in high school and I couldn't remember what it was, the one that had the greasers in it? Well, I Googled it after the podcast, and it's The Outsiders by S.E. Hilton. And Ron, what did they miss out on? What they missed out on is whoever guessed it could have won a brand new Monsters pinball machine provided by last month's sponsor, Dwight Sullivan's Code. Oh, that's tough. Man, they could have, if they would have got the secret question, they could have won a brand new Monsters Pinball Machine by Dwight Sullivan's Code. Man, oh man, that's so tough. So if they guessed it, we would have said what? That you, you, you get the secret code, which is drink more Ovaltine? That's right. That's our version of that, which is much, much better and much more lucrative. Well, let's jump into the today's topic. And before Stern Pinball Incorporated, which dominates today's pinball landscape, there was Stern Electronics. Ron, you know a lot about Stern Electronics, don't you? You could say that. I, I may have a few of them. So what? how many Sterns do you have in your collection? Oh, These boy. classic Sterns. Uh, let's see. Well, I have Stars, uh, Cheetah... Nine Ball, Big Game, Stargazer, Meteor, Dragon Fist. Oh, and Quicksilver. And and you've had more in the past? Uh, no, I pretty much kept them all. Uh, my father has a, a Sea Witch. Okay, and you're are you looking forward to collecting a few more of these classic Sterns into your collection? Uh, maybe one or two more. I have most of what, what I want at this point. Okay, okay. So I've only played a few classic Sterns. I, they do have a bit of a charm to them, and we'll we'll get into the deeper dives as we get on to the, today's pod, but you are a, a connoisseur, if you will, of the classic Stern electronics. Yes, you, you could say that. You have, you have your Gottlieb connoisseurs, your Bally connoisseurs, your Williams connoisseurs, and then you have your Stern connoisseurs. Yeah, so one one thing that you've always been criticized about on the Slam Tilt podcast is actually creating the Stern Electronics secondary market. Isn't that true? Yeah, they're really expensive now. 
we're being blamed for that. You've pumped that up. You were the one that was throwing the wood on the fire. But the cool thing is we got them all before they got expensive. So Yeah, wasn't that funny? Isn't that, that great? So if I wanted to if I if I were looking for the next thing that you and I should pump over over the lifetime of our podcast to boost the prices, what should that be? You mean what game should we pick to get expensive? Um easy. Close encounters of the third kind. Make there it so expensive go. that no one wants to buy it, so I never have to play it. Gottlieb System One games. That's what we're going for. We'll get into those in another podcast. Where did Stern Electronics come from, Ron? It didn't just get started one day out of a factory, right? That is correct. They came from the what was left of Chicago Coin when Sam Stern bought them out. One of the earlier pinball manufacturers from, well, you guessed it, Chicago, was Chicago Coin. And I want to get into a little bit of the background of Chicago Coin. So to know where Stern comes from, I think it's important for us to go back and look at what was the company that Sam and Gary Stern purchased to create Stern Electronics. Founded in 1933, the division of Chicago Dynamic Industries by Sam H. Gensberg, at the time he operated a trade-in business, and trade-in business models was very big in the coin-op industry back in the late 1930s. Ron, do you know what the trade-in business was? So the trade-in business was early conversion kits, where they take your game, pull it apart, put some stuff on it, and boom, you got a new game. I mean, it's tough in the Great Depression and in the war times in the late 30s, early 40s, around the time of the Second World War, to get materials so it was easier just to recycle those machines and convert them. And a lot of the games were very similar, too. They were very, very similar. And one of the people that really got their start in this was the man himself, Harry Williams. That was really his business model. Chicago Coin made a lot of bingos, a lot of gun games, a lot of shuffle alleys. Do you have a shuffle alley? I do not have a shuffle alley. Those are like all the rage. I noticed that big collectors, people that have big collections, often... Oh, people who who have big basements would have. Yeah, yeah, those bowlers. You need room for that, yeah. And if you have like a ball bowler, you need a ton of room for one of those. Chicago Coin never really made a huge impact in the industry. I mean, they were there, they were they were always kind of around. In the 1930s and 40s, they did a lot of bingo machines. Generally, they would sell 1,500, 2,000 units, and they really struggled when they got into the 60s and 70s because they spent most of their time on non-pinball like bat games, and again, those shuffle alleys and gun games. Chicago Coin made boards for the early bingo games. And we're not talking like electronic boards, but there was like literally a board, right, Ron, where they would put all of these switches and and knobs and, and hooks that would create actual math, right? Yeah, but bingo games are some of the most complicated electromechanical devices you will ever encounter yeah i i don't know why anybody would want to get into so much math but i mean i i guess that's kind of the 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 area that we're in right um when a pinball yes there's probably a lot of people who are good at math now louis gensberg david gensberg and meyer gensberg in 1931 they had founded genco which is an amusement manufacturer basically a competitor to chicago coin and they were actually relatives to the gensberg family or samuel gensberg i bet you that would be awkward thanksgiving dinners for sure that's very awkward after 1953 the competitors kind of merged i guess they sort of decided that uh they you know a, a company that's separate is probably less effective against the companies like the Gottliebs and the Bally's that were mostly the industry dominators. Funny little note about Genco or Genco. I've heard it both ways. 
And I'm always confused at what's the proper pronunciation of that company. I've heard it called Genco. I've heard it called Genco. Huh. So if anybody knows, send us a line. Send us an email and tell us how to say it properly. Yes. I've heard Steve Kordek, who actually worked there, he said it was Genko. So I guess I should go by yeah, that. Yeah, he would, he would probably be able to, to, to be the, the person we should lean on. Considering that it is Gensberg is the last name of the owners is probably that way. Now, some of their biggest sellers, uh, Kilroy was 8,800 units. That was from January 1957, and 8,800 units back then. I mean, last episode, we talked about 10,000 units of selling something was a big deal. So when you're talking 30 years before that and they're selling 8,000 units, that's, a, that's, that's pretty staggering. Did these have flippers, or was these older games? Kilroy had... Kilroy sounds like a 30s game. That sounds like a really old game. Yeah, it's a 47. Let me take a look at this picture. It doesn't say. It did not have flippers. Flipperless. So, Ron, just a little bit of background. What When we talk about a flipper, non-flipper game, what are we talking about? Humpty Dumpty was the first game with the flippers. And after that came out, everyone had to have flippers on their game immediately. All the flipperless games became completely obsolete almost immediately. So pretty much anything before Humpty Dumpty is going to be referred to as a flipperless game. Uh, when we look at their second largest seller, which was Beamlight, that was from 1935, and that one actually had zero flippers, and it was more of like a bagatelle game, which is kind of where you shoot the ball up, it bounces around, it lands in a hole, it's pretty awesome. Oh, it is. It, it requires <laughs> you to do math, too. You have to, you, you have to add up all of the, the pockets, the holes that it goes in for your score. Yeah, and, and so this company, they're you know they're generating revenue. They've got some decent sellers. They they just sort of are there, right? They're not they're not an industry leader. They're not innovating. None of that stuff. Well, you know, around the 1970s, you're really trying to compete with the Gottliebs of the world, the Bally's of the world, and they've really stepped up their game at that point, right? In the early 70s, better cranking them out. Especially you go into the mid 70s and they start licensing things, especially Bally games like Wizard, Captain Fantastic. Yeah, so the, the best way to compete with that is to not compete with that. And that's really what Chicago Coin decided to do. And as I mentioned before, they did kind of more of those shooting gun games. They did a few more of the different style games as opposed to the flippers. And in 1973, they really moved into video because video was all the rage at the time. They had a knockoff Pong, which was called Video Ping Pong. Everyone had a knockoff Pong. In 1974, they were actually sued, along with a bunch of other companies by Magnavox, regarding patents of their Magnavox Odyssey from 1972, which is really the first commercial home video console. So we're talking before the Atari 2600, way before this, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Way so, before. And the thing about the Magnavox Odyssey actually had, and when people think of, say, Nintendo, the NES, they think of the Zapper gun that it came with. Magnavox also came with a gun, and it was a big-ass rifle that looked real. Of course it did. Everything in the 70s was super like that, right? So this was this was kind of an interesting time because during that lawsuit, they really Chicago Coin really got into financial trouble along with a lot of these other companies. So because of that, they moved into somewhat of a of a bankruptcy period and they ended up selling their assets, the the pinball assets, the manufacturing assets of Chicago Coin to Sam and Gary Stern. When your company 
gets into kind of a bankruptcy, you can actually sell off those assets to a new company without that company actually assuming the debt. Chicago Coins assets were purchased at bankruptcy sale, forming the core inventory for Stern Electronics Incorporated. And because it was a separate company, they didn't assume the debt that Chicago Coin had amassed fighting this lawsuit. If I remember, Gary Stern's a lawyer, so I'm sure he had all that under control. The Stearns are such an integral part, particularly Gary Stern, now in today's pinball landscape, being the owner of the dominant brand in the industry. You know, the guy has to at least know what's coming and going, right? And at this time, he's really sort of starting in the industry with somebody like Sam Stern, his father, you know, I think he's really he's really got a hold of this. And today he's probably got a better hold than he ever has. So enter Sam Stern. Uh, Ron, Sam Stern was obviously the sort of the leader of this purchase, the person who really sort of came in with Gary. Um, you know, who was Sam Stern? Well, Sam Stern started in the business in 1931 when he was talked into buying five coin-operated amusement machines. So I believe he did some operating. At the time, he was working in a men's clothing business. I uh, took on a Rockola distributorship in Philadelphia. And probably one of his most important contributions before Stern Electronics was he was part owner of Williams Electronics with Harry Williams. And that's the famous the airplane story where basically Sam Stern went in a Harry Williams' office and said, why don't you sell me your company? So Harry Williams, who had a pilot's license, he went out in his private plane and flew around Chicago a little bit. Just think about it. Came back and said, sure. Let's do it. And he sells them. He sells them forty nine percent of his company, right? Not controlling yep. share, but he gets he gets basically half of the company. Mm-hmm. Imagine if I just sort of, you know, I went out and I got on my Nissan Murano, jump in my car, drive over to Chicago. I walk into uh, I walk into Jersey Jack at their new uh, manufacturing facility, and I just go, "Hey, hey, Jack, sell me half of your company." And I got like a double breasted suit, probably a cigar feet up on the desk. Do you think that would pan out for me? No, I don't think it would pan out at all. Yeah. So he really, he was really integral, Sam Stern, I guess, and and, William, and Harry Williams at building the foundation for the coin-op industry, really kind of in that post-war era when the flippers started becoming, you know, much more commonplace. Yeah. And the thing to remember about Harry Williams was more, he was an innovator. He was a designer. He liked making games. He liked being an engineer yeah, more than he so liked running a company, Someone coming right? in saying, I'll run the company, and, and they were buddies. It's like, sure, that's perfect. I want to just make games. Yeah. I mean, in the 1950s, um, they'd introduced so many innovations, um, things like the score reels, uh, multiplayer games, sophisticated mechanisms, like something as silly as we think of today as like the tilt bob created by Harry Williams. He would much prefer doing that as opposed to actually running the ins and outs of a company. Those are two totally different skill sets. Which will come into play later in our story. Yeah, one of the one of the funny things that uh, that I read was that Sam Stern would often walk by people's desks, and then he'd just grab papers and flip through the papers and go, that number's wrong, and then just walk away. In 1959, Sam saw the opportunity to purchase the rest of Williams Manufacturing and he kept the company until 1964 when he actually sold the company for an exchange of stock in Seaberg Corp. But he remained the president until 1969 at Williams. What's Seaberg, what's Seaberg Corp? 
Seaburg's probably most known for making jukeboxes. Yeah, some of the Seaburgs, I think, are probably the prettiest jukeboxes out there, in my opinion. And the thing about Harry Williams, at this point, I think in 1960, I think he made one of his last games, yeah, for Williams, and kind of went into a semi... Well, he never retired, but he kind of left Williams. I believe he went back to California and started making other things. Like little golf, that mini pro golf game he came up with, and I think he had his own company there. So that that's where he was hanging out for the time being. Yeah, so Harry Williams is always the innovator, right? He just can't stop tinkering. He's a tinkerer. So when Sam Stern's contract was up, he went over to Bally as an executive vice president for a year. But it wasn't too long until he was right back at Seaburg as president, and that's where he remained until December of 1976. What happened then? Sam learned that Chicago Coin had defaulted on a loan, and he and his son Gary jumped on the opportunity. Sam was obviously itching to get back into pinball or into manufacturing in general. He wanted to own everything. He wanted to do that. So he jumped in with his son Gary. Gary, as you had mentioned earlier, was a lawyer by education, and he shortly practiced law before entering the pinball industry. And uh, often remembers visiting the manufacturing line when he was young. Yeah, so he's a second-generation pinball manufacturer. He's got a different perspective on the business. Um, One of the interesting stories was at 16, Gary spent the working summer at Williams. He worked in the stock room. He was a personnel manager. Yeah, and he learned he shouldn't use any tools because he would often destroy things on the manufacturing floor. So he, w- he was not very uh, adept at actually building anything. Yeah, he was the opposite of a Harry Williams. He was maybe Sam Stern kind of in the middle. You got Gary on the other side who's more of the sort of the academic thought business person, right? Like, don't give the man a hammer, basically. So when Sam heard about Chicago Coin... I mean, Gary, Gary was pretty much in at that point. And uh, when asked on an article by uh, This Week in Pinball what his first pinball machine was, Gary said that he had never bought a pinball machine. I've bought some pinball companies, but I've never bought a pinball machine. And that's a true answer. I totally believe that. I totally believe that. I guarantee you he doesn't have a single game in his house. A quote from Gary Stern I love Flight 2000, Harry Williams games like that. I love some of the Steve Kirk's games like Meteor, Stars, and Nine Ball. A lot of our old games back in the day. Yeah, but what? I mean, if you ask Gary Stern what his favorite game was, what would he tell you? Whatever's on the line. Exactly, and I, 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 f- I think it's pretty interesting to be able to say, hey, I found a quote where he actually talked about a game that wasn't on the line. So there you go. Good, good job, uh, Jeff uh, Patterson over at This Week in Pinball to get Gary to actually say that. So do you want to get into some of the games that Stern Electronics released? So they buy the company, they start manufacturing. Do you want to, do you want to jump into that now? Sure. The, the first game they actually did was a holdover from Chicago Coin called Stampede. And when, remember, when they first took over Chicago Coin, it was still electromechanicals. We haven't gone into solid state yet. So a Stampede was actually the first game. So there are Stampedes that are stamped with the Chicago Coin logo, and then there's one stamped with the Stern logo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then there's also, I believe, Rawhide, which is, I think that's like a four-player version of Stampede. Yeah, so, so let me, uh, let me yippee-yay-kaye the stats here for you for Stampede. Oh. <laughs> yeah, we're still doing this thing. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I hope you're enjoying it. So uh, it's a cowboy, like cowgirl western theme. Uh, it's from February 77. It's electromechanical. 
so it still has the reels and the chimes and all of the 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 shenanigans in the in the bottom. It doesn't have computer boards. They produced uh, one thousand one hundred. It was designed by Albin Peters, Jerry Cokey, and Wendell McAdam. Uh, these were holdovers from the Chicago Coin Time. They actually didn't do any other Sterns. This was the, these were the last machines they did. The artwork was by Christian Marche, who did uh, art everywhere with Bally and Williams. It's, I think it's Christian. I think it's Christian Marsh. He says Marsh. Yeah, Marsh. I believe it's Marsh. He doesn't know how to say his real name. Maybe maybe when he, he, he well he's French. Maybe they non-Frenched it when he came over. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway, he did the art for uh, Grand Prix, Tri Zone, uh, Hot Tip and Space Odyssey, some of those sort of iconic EMs of Bally back in the 70s. I'm looking at our notes, and I'm glad you skipped over Stratoflight, because that is a terrible game. Yeah. <laughs> I only know that one because I see it for sale all the time. Yeah, there's a reason. <laughs> so, of course, you added Rawhide in there, which was the four-player game. It sold 1,200 units. So together, combined, you know, it's selling around 2,000 500 2300 units so i mean it's not a it's not a failure by any means it was it's still sold and then their next game was disco gee i wonder why that came out during the disco craze of the mid to late 70s another em two-player version and the funny thing is uh for my notes here it has no designer credited so no yeah. one wanted to take any credit for this particular game. Right. So that's just another machine that was sort of just there. They needed to kind of get something out, something on the line. And, you know, my assumption would be that it would be Jerry Cokey that uh, that did that. And, um, Ron, do you have a copy of the Pinball Compendium book? Somewhere in this house. Yes, I do. Somewhere, somewhere in the house. So I've got both copies. That's one of the resources that I've got. Um, in the show notes. It's one of the resources I'm using a lot. And I thought it would be a really good time to leverage that, uh, that book to talk about Jerry Cokey because he's probably one of those people that has done a lot in pinball, but I don't think gets a lot of recognition. So I thought this would be a really good point uh, to, to bring him up considering this is his last game. So he was the head engineer of Chicago Coin. He was born on June the 12th, 1910 in Chicago. He really worked in TV and phone manufacturing until the Depression in the 1930s when he went back to school for engineering. He joined Bally and then in 1936 went to Chicago Coin. During the war, Jerry repositioned Chicago Coin into the war effort making sub-assemblies for planes, tanks, and naval vessels. And he had a very good reputation at Chicago Coin for making quality materials. In 1950, even NASA contracted Chicago Coin to manufacture some of their pieces. His first game that he created was Bermuda in 1947, and his last game designed was Stampede 1977, although I kind of think he probably did Disco as well. And he was kind of, what, he'd been 67 around the time? So he's probably nearing retirement. Yeah, I think at that time when there's such an upheaval in the in the industry, there's a lot of upheaval within the company you're in in general. At that point, you're probably like, ah, I've kind of had it. So he's not a really well-known person. He's not a Harry Williams. He's not a Gary Stern, but I thought he needed to be recognized. Yeah. And now he is. So their next game, and, and I consider this kind of the first real Stern game has the least original title of any I think you I've mean the heard. best title. The best title. It's called Yeah, what else Pinball. do you need? 
pinball by Stern. It has just a big silver ball on it. And the thing about this game is it was originally made as electromechanical, and there's very few of them. There was there was only about 594 produced of the electromechanical version. And then they went to solid state. So there was way more solid state Yeah, 1,650 solid states produced, so almost triple the yep. amount. And how they got there is very interesting. Because if, if you look at a stern, a solid state stern, and you look at a bally of the same era, you're going to think, hmm, these are very similar. Yeah, so you open up the head, you take the back glass off, you open up the cabinet, you look inside, and they look exactly the same. Pretty much, yeah. And, and how, how did that happen? Well, I mean... It's just a coincidence, obviously. Oh, I'm, I'm sure it was a coincidence. No, what happened is um, Stern invested in solid-state technology. And how they invested, they, they acquired Universal Research Laboratories, URL. Okay. And what they did is they produced circuit boards. And they were tasked with reverse engineering the so Valley board So Gary set. and Sam, let's assume kind of showed up to this company that they purchased URL and say, Hey, I got these boards. Can you make these boards? And they just copied them. Pretty much just, well, copied. No, I, got, I mean, I guess you call it reverse engineering. Well, yeah, they reversed engineering. They called them different things, but if they're the same, same boards, they use the same system, which consists of basically a, uh, yeah, MPU, the computer, the computer, a solenoid driver board. So, so, so the solenoid that drives the the pop bumpers and the the drop yep. targets and stuff. And then you had your lamp driver board, which is for the lights. Lights. Then you would have your transformer and your rectifier board. Right, which runs the power. Which they would add things later, like sound boards and but, but that. So you're telling so you're telling me that they are almost identical. Uh, they're pretty much identical because if you get one any repro board, like an Alltech or something like that, you can use it on any Valley or Stern of the era. Well, what are the odds of that? Uh, what are the odds that Bally sued them? Because they did. Ultimately, Stern had to pay Bally a royalty for each one of the systems that were sold. I couldn't find the details of that through my research. And, you know, honestly, I think Bally probably didn't mind because they saw it as their system as the system. So if they have another company using their system, I mean, Bally tried from the very beginning. Bally, when they came up with their solid state system, they tried to trademark it. Not just their system, but any solid state. Oh, I see. So, so, so they like if you made an electronic pinball game, you had to use their system. Luckily, they didn't win that, or or we'd have that. That wouldn't have been good for the industry. Yes. Well, I mean, when you look at it, Bally obviously, you know, wanted everybody to use their technology because then they could be able to sort of dictate what the industry went in which direction. In this case, they could grab a royalty. But but surely Gary Stern learned a lesson, right, to never copy a board set again. Now, I did the same thing with Daddy East when they ripped off William System 11. But that's for a future episode. That's that's getting way ahead here. Way ahead, way ahead. Now, these first electronic games that Stern did, they used the M100 MPU board, which uh, I'll mention that because when we get when we get into what a lot of people consider their most classic games is the point where they upgraded their CPU board or MPU board to a to a more powerful board with more capabilities. 
they really ramped up the horsepower. Yeah. At this point, they still they had no soundboard. Pinball actually has chimes, just like an EM. They did not go. Um, we we do not have sound yet. So we're so we're still inside the machine. We still have a, a chime box. So it still, still sounds like box. an old EM machine, right? It's still. And Stern used actually a four chime, a four bar chime box as opposed to a three three bar chime box. Okay, so they got a different note. And yeah, they have a. I think it's the the bigger one, which would be what the lower note. But their their chime boxes, they're terrible. They're ter- they're terrible. They're like a little piece of wood, and they literally destroy themselves over time. Actually, of this the the classic Sterns that I have seen, the earlier M100 machines, they've all had Zachariah chime boxes in them. Really? Yeah. Interesting. This the Stern chime boxes have a very distinct, very tinny sound, almost cheap, but it's kind of their charm. Would you say that the Sterns probably went for a cost-cutting version of their chime box? Uh, I would say, hmm, I think I've said this analogy before. Think of the companies. Think of um, think of Williams and Bally as a, a well-built, say, economy car. And Gottlieb is like a uh, station wagon with the wood paneling on the side. Mm, the real fake wood paneling? Uh <laughs> But really built well, but not you know not something you actually want to drive around. And think of Stern is that really awesome sports car that's made almost entirely of plastic that if it hits anything will just disintegrate. And that's a that's that's a Stern, as, the Fiero of the pinball industry. As, as someone who's had Williams old Williams solid state games and Bally solid state games, I can say they definitely have a cheaper feel. The cabinets just. Most things about them are, are cheaper, but that's what makes them play the way they do. Their mechs are cheap, they're light, but because of that, they just they really work well, and the games play super fast. It is part of the charm. Pinball was designed by Mike Kubin, right? So he did Electronimo and Nugent and Magic and, and most notably Sea Witch. He was a very prolific designer at the old Stern. Mm. Uh, fun fact. Did you hear that? I played a song there. You did? No. Oh. Uh, it uses the same ROMs as Stingray. Their next game. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Stingray is a water sports. No, not that kind of water sports. Oh. And scuba diving theme from 1977 in December. Standard body sold 3,000 units. And again, Mike Cubbin, Sam Stern, and this fella, Roger Sharp. Roger Sharp? What What did he do to the game? Well, uh, Roger Sharp showed up at the factory one day and just said, hey, you should put the stuff on the left side of the play field a little bit different and the one on the right side make these changes and inevitably made the game worse. <laughs> to your opinion. In my opinion, of course. Well, Dylan says, I love Stingray. I miss it and I regret selling it. The spinner was great and the double scoop setup always made for fun. The potential of getting 55000 from a scoop made them tempting. The artwork and theme were fantastic too. Only thing I had a problem with was how worthless and dangerous the drop targets felt compared to the rest of the game. When I find another one, I will certainly pick it up again. Yeah, those drop targets and that side of the game. Thanks, Roger Sharp. Actually, Dylan is from my hometown here in Fredericton, New Brunswick, and uh, the person who really was able to bring me in to competitive pinball. I think the first real rocket that Stern Electronics had was Stars, And we received this email to silverballchronicles at gmail.com from Chris. And Chris said, Dearest Ron, he wrote that in capitals, and Dynamite Dave, Steve Kirk 
and stars. That is all, Chris. Uh, he's right. Everyone knows stars is one of the greatest games ever made. I have yet to play a stars. Oh, oh. Although stars really intrigues me. Stars is just one more game. Just one more game over and over and over. Cannot stop playing it. I would say this is probably one of the definitely the best MPU 100 game that they did. And it still has the chimes. We still have no we still have no sound. We have no soundboard yet. So it's like space exploration theme. Yeah. It's from March 78. Sold 5,127 units. A ton units. of them. Um, Their biggest hit. Yep. And the the funny thing about it is this this was Steve Kirk's first game that he did. I mean he has credits on other games before this, but this was his first solo design credit. And it has one pop bumper, just one pop bumper at the top, and it's wide open game. And he actually had to fight with management to get the one pop bumper. Well, I mean Gary Stern's thing is like three you, pop yeah bumpers, right? yeah I could see Gary Stern sitting there. Where's the three pop bumpers? And and he was incredulous. It's like I don't get it. I'm keeping the cost down by not putting other pop bumpers in here. And you're yelling at me. I mean, that it had to have a very low bill of materials. If you actually look at it, it only has two three banks, and all the rest are stand-up targets, one spinner and one pop-upper. Mm. I, it is quite barren underneath the play field, I could tell you that, as far as max. This could not have cost that much to make. It's probably why they made so many of them. It's an so all-time the, the, classic. The cool thing about stars is there's there's targets throughout the machine. You shoot that target, which is which is a star, and then that star adds more value to the spinner on the on the right side of the playfield, right? That is correct. So the thing is, like, how many stars can I get to to juice that spinner? And they're all in sort of dangerous places, right? Uh, well, the two are. The rest are at the top and are a pretty safe place. Okay, so then you're like, okay, well, I can go for the two safe ones and then smash that spinner. Or I can try to eke out another one or two and try to juice that spinner. Or you just try to get a drop bank down to get the double bonus and just try to build your bonus up. Okay, so you skip and that. Ignore the stars. You, you can okay. do it either way. There are multiple strategies. Yes, even on a game this old, you do not have to go for the stars if you don't want to. So that's kind of one of the first games where you could be like, well, wait a second. I, I don't have to just do the thing. But the thing is is the funnest thing to try to do. Well, yeah, of course. Everybody loves orbit spinners. Like, come it, on. It has other interesting rules with the um, the drop targets, where if you get the two outer ones down, but the center one's still up, it lights that one for, I think, like 7,000 points or something like that. It hasn't has a lot of nice rules like that. Complete things, but don't complete things. Uh, you know, like like the the drops actually control the value of the left spinner but if you get them all down then it resets the value just a lot of a lot of cool rules in a game like this that's this old that it just it keeps you coming back i can't say enough good things about stars what do you think of the art of stars it's passable passable i think it's pretty cool it's passable i kind of really like it now that's done by uh my buddy jorge your buddy jorge yeah <laughs> the hell is his name jorge abaron abragon Jorge Abragon. That sounds Jorge Abragon. And he really did three games, which surprisingly enough are all Steve Kirk games. Wow. He must've been his personal artist. He's like his buddy. Yeah. His, his hombre. (laughs) The thing about stars too. I I never see a good stars backlash. They're always wasted. They are always a mess, but CPR has a new reproduction mirrored backlash and it looks gorgeous. That's another thing about the Stearns. They used, 
Well, actually, Stars has the thicker back glass, but their back glasses, for whatever reason, they just don't seem to hold up as well as some of the other manufacturers. They're Are you saying that they were probably made on the cheap? Uh, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a Stern. I mean, I've seen some good Stern back glasses, but I mean, most of them just a lot just seem to get wasted. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So, I mean, I guess this is a good place to really dive into who is Steve Kirk, right? Steve Kirk is awesome. Yeah, so Steve Kirk, best known for Stars, Meteor, Nine Ball, Gamatron, Swords of Fury. Uh, we'll deep dive those in a moment. His first credited design was 1968 with Gottlieb Fun Park with Ed Krinsky, the legend himself. What kind of brought him up into the fold and to bring him notoriety, and I, I would assume what brought his attention to somebody like a Gary Stern was that he actually wrote a book about pinball and tournament pinball in 1978. In uh, February of 1978, Playmeter magazine actually named Steve Kirk Coin Man of the Month, and it was about the time that Stars was going to come out. Steve Kirk, he's accredited for a couple of things, but one of them was that he actually was the president and one of the main founders of the Pinball Association of America. Have you heard of that before, Ron? Uh, I have heard of that. I've seen the phone number. <laughs> yeah, so... In 1975, the association held its first national pinball open in Chicago. It drew 1,400 players. That's more than Pinburg. Wow. So that's, I mean, that's a big deal, which is probably one of the reasons why he decided to write a book. So his book was 128 pages, 5,000 words, and really talked about the history of pinball, where pinball was going, and tournament pinball and risk reward very cool read if you can get your hands on one which is basically impossible so since 1971 when they started uh, signing memberships they've actually sold about 9,000 memberships at the time by 1978 over a seven-year period that's a lot of players so like ifpa before ifpa this is the ifpa before the ifpa it's it's a big deal Tournaments, in fact, would usually start on a Friday afternoon. They'd end on a Sunday. So it's it's he was a he was sort of a big, um, I, I guess, mover and shaker in early competitive pinball, which is really I think probably one of the reasons he got moved into sort of a designer role. So one of the cool bits about stars, one of the things that you'll see is that there is a rocket on there flying across the back glass. There's an SK one which stands for Steve Kirk 1 for his first design. Which gets confusing later, as you'll see. Yeah, it's going to get into a whole whole thing. For, for people that are good at math, for some reason it really got out of hand here with, uh, with the numbering. One thing that's also really cool about stars is the Kirk post. What's a Kirk post? The Kirk post is the post that's in between the flippers because the, the game has a very wide flipper gap. The post is there. It's, it's meant to be it's part of the game you play the post so what are some of the what are some of the strategies you use with the with the with the kirk post if it's going right down the center you can save it you could also use it to transfer the ball from one flipper to another doesn't always work but you can try it you can get it to so if you've got your ball trapped on the left side you can lower that flipper and it can roll down yep. bounce off the post and land on the on the right flipper hopefully doesn't always work 
Depends. It depends on the particular stars you're playing. So you've seen people do that? I've seen people do that. Hmm. Now, do they usually keep those in a Pinberg-style event, like a big event? Do they usually keep the Kirk Post in place? I've seen it removed, but not for a long time. It's usually always there. It, the game doesn't need to be made any harder. It's plenty hard. It's very hard as it is. Yeah. So so what we'll do here is we'll follow Steve Kirk's career and then we'll dive back into Stern in a moment because we're going to get our timelines messed up here a little bit. Actually, before you do that, we should mention we should mention the uh, his name is on the play field. Oh, yeah. Very. Yeah, totally. Another thing that Steve Kirk brought to Stern and I would say to pretty much all pinball because I don't think this had occurred before Steve Kirk did it, but I'm sure someone can correct me. Steve Kirk insisted that his name be put on the play field as a designer credit. So, so before they didn't have that. Yeah. Before the designers usually didn't get credit, they might put their names or hide them in the art somewhere in a backlash or the people who did the backlash could usually hide to put their names in there. There were other designers that might, they might have like, um, I can't remember his name, but one of the ballet designers, he would put like a, a, a certain red post in every game. That was his, that was his trademark. Oh, it was the fellow that did Xenon. It's, he did um, Harlem Globetrotters. So if you look at, if you look at Harlem, you'll see a red post that's a little different than all the other posts. That was his trademark. Steve Kirk was like, no, I want credit. I want the design credit on the play field. So if you look at stars, it says right on it, designed Greg by Steve Kirk. Chemic. Chemic? So there you go, Greg Chemic. I only know that because I had Xenon. And when I bought it and I went to rebuild it, Buddy was like, if you throw this post out, I will kill you. <laughs> so his, his name is... And Stern started doing that for their other designers too, going forward in a lot of their games. Harry Williams, they started putting his name on there. Even the other designers, they started getting credit. Even games like, if you go all the way to the end, like My Dragon Fist, it has JoJo's, the designer, his name's right on the play field. And as far as I know, they were the only ones doing that at that. So time. why do you think that? Uh, why do you think that they didn't have their names on the play field before? Just wasn't a thing, I guess. They, I don't think anyone insisted on it. Like I want my damn name on it. I mean, I would. I would probably say that. I mean, maybe it's because the manufacturer doesn't want anybody to know who the designer is because if the talent moves around in the industry, that individual is going to follow the talent as opposed to stay with the brand. That's a good point. A current Stern doesn't put their name on the playfield, unless it's a signature on an LE or something. So, what was Steve Kirk's next game after the the awesomeness that is Stars? Yeah, so Steve Kirk really followed that up with I I think one of the most fun games I've played when it comes to early Solid State, and that's Meteor. And I'm gonna I'm gonna just jump right in here. Let the stats fall to earth, like a meteor. Oh, very good. That's Space Apocalypse theme. It's from September 1979. It's an M200, the first M200 system. Yes, it is. It's uh, that. This one is a smash hit. It sells 7,939 units, and it is Stern's highest seller since Stars. And it was once again the art and the programming by the same team, with Steve Kirk leading them. I would say Meteor may be the best Stern game. The backlash and the flyer were derived from the 1979 movie Meteor, and the original printing of the poster is by the space artist Robert McCall. And the first game to actually have the SB300 soundboard sounds fancy. Well, it, it was the first game they'd had with decent sound. 
because their MPU 100 games, when they got ditched the chimes and they started to actually use sound, they were bad. Very bad. So would you say that they are Gottlieb System 1 bad? Yes. Yeah. Oh. They're kind of at that level. Would you say that this new SB300 is better or oh, worse? Much, way better. Way better. In the first episode, we talked about Flash coming on the scene with Steve Ritchie and Williams, and they added dynamic background sound. And that's kind of really what the SB300 soundboard did, right? It added this this tone. It had this droning sound, yes. Meteor was the beginning of what a lot of people consider the, the, the golden age or the best sterns that would come out. They start with Meteor when they did the upgrade to the MPU-200, got the soundboard, the new soundboard in there with the actual decent sounds. This is where it really starts, where they, they really start kicking some butt. Yeah, so so Steve, of course, we mentioned a few moments ago, was the founder and president of the, the body that really managed pinball tournaments. And his games from this point on actually had a sticker on the lower apron identifying that it was selected as a game for tournament play. And reportedly these stickers, which were Steve Kirk's idea, were installed in each apron starting from this point on during long production runs. So you mentioned before you saw the phone number before, and this is where you'd see that phone number, right? Yep, it would say right on the sticker. The stickers, I think they started putting them on about halfway through the production run. I actually have an earlier meteor. It doesn't have the sticker, but the later ones do. That's one way you can you can tell if no one's removed it. That's one way you can tell whereabouts you are in the uh, the run, whether you have the sticker or not. Yeah, my 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 friend Dylan, who um, had the quote from earlier on on uh, Stingray, he has a meteor, and I cannot recall if he has one of these stickers. Next time I see him, I'm going to check and see if it does. Yeah, and on the meteor back glass, and this is where it gets weird. On the actual ro- on one of the rockets. Oh, have you ever seen the movie Meteor? I haven't seen the movie Meteor. I assume it's amazing. Uh, well, people don't realize how tied into the movie the game is. In the movie, it takes them three rockets to destroy the meteor, and those are your three rockets in the middle of the playfield. Oh, I see. So, yeah. but it's not it's not it's not a licensed title, though, right? No, it is totally a licensed title. Is it really? Yes, it's based off the movie. Oh, I didn't know that. I just assumed that it was like, oh, well, we'll just make this game that's kind of like the movie. No, if you look at the back glass, it's got the trademark right on it. It's it's from the movie. Very cool. And I just think it's funny that a, a tie-in to a movie where they actually they must have had the script or something to know what the plot of the movie is because it mirrors the plot that's why there's three rockets in the center of the playfield. would you say that meteor is better or worse as a movie compared to disney's black hole oh i've actually seen black hole it's on disney plus nothing to do with the godly black hole they're completely separate they have nothing to do with each other uh, I don't, last time I saw Black Hole, I was a kid. I remember Maximilian was pretty cool, the robot. That's all I remember. Yeah, maybe we'll do, uh, maybe we'll do a, a movies and, uh, pinball machines episode. Or movies, uh, Disney made when they were hurting episode. <laughs> yeah, so if you want to do an episode of movies with pinball machines, just send us an email at silverballchronicles at gmail.com. Do you mean movies with pinball machines in them? Or pinball machines about movies. No, pinball machines about movies. Oh, there you go. We're talking like Tron Legacy, one of the greatest games ever created. 
Sure. I, I own one of those. I, I, I know. Okay. But on the meteor back glass, on the side of one of the rockets, it says SK-5. Well, that doesn't make sense. This is his second game. It, exactly. It doesn't make sense. And that's why it's so upsetting that Mr. Kirk is no longer with us, because that would literally be the first thing I'd ask him. Please, please, especially in this era of podcasts and everyone gets interviewed, he would so be getting interviewed now. I think so. If he, wa- if he wanted to, though. He might not have wanted to be interviewed. Who knows? That's true. So his next game was Nine Ball. And let's nine ball corner pocket some stats here. It's a pool gambling space wizard magic-y theme. It's from December 1980. It's an M200, 2,279 machines produced. And again, same programming, same art team. And a mechanical and software nightmare. A mechanical nightmare. Please tell me why. It's mechanical nightmare for one reason. It has a drop target bank. That must weigh 15, 20 pounds. Okay, so it's it's on the left side of the playfield. There's like how many drop targets? There's eight drop targets. Seven of them are individually addressable and can be dropped. There is literally, let me count here, seven. There's eight coils on the mech. Seven little coils and one large reset coil. If you want each drop target to come down, it needs a separate up and down by itself. Well, it just goes down by itself. It doesn't go up by itself. So it still needs a coil for that. So what will happen is there's one through eight. It's it's numbered one through eight. They're all pool balls. Get it? So you need to hit them in order. So if you hit like one, it goes down. If you hit three, it'll go down. But then when you hit two, it'll reset all the targets and then drop everything except the one, the two, and the three that you hit down. Oh, I see. And it resets and drops. Reset, reset, re- over and over and over. And it works the mech so much that it literally just destroys itself. Believe me, from one who knows, and the game has multi-ball. It has a lock area that uses a really bizarre, when you lock balls in there, they actually kind of stack on top of each other. Interesting. So it frequently, if the switches are even slightly out of adjustment and it doesn't know where the balls are, it will get horribly confused. And it has very poor, they did 60 revisions of the software trying to get it to work right. Wow. That's right. 60 revisions. And most of it had to do with multi-ball not working right, losing track of where the balls were, getting confused. It just, they, they could not account for if something went wrong in the game. I know, I, I have one. I, I use it in tournaments, but it's always an iffy proposition of whether it will get confused at some point. But it's still a great game. It was maybe a bit ambitious for the time. The mech is actually from another game, the drop target mech from Hell. It's from Flight 2000. But on that game, it's not used the same way. It's not cycled over and over, so it doesn't really have the issues that it does on Nine Ball. I've never, I've never seen a Nine Ball. Nine Ball also has a cool hanging spinner, like it's only mounted on one side, and it and it hangs out. Oh, it's like those modern spinners. Uh, it's like a spinner. I think Metallica. They they hang out. It's just connected on one side. Very cool. But it has to be one of the first to have that. I don't think too many of them had that back then. Yeah. So it's Easter egg. It has an SK three on the on the okay, wizard's hat. Okay, that's his third game. Well, what's five? Why is Meteor five? It makes no sense. Maybe he designed it before they actually. Yeah, that's the rumor. Is is that was actually fifth design? Well, what happened to all his other designs then? Uh, it... It's yeah. Every time he wrote one, like, nah, that one sucks. I'm not doing yeah, that one. Okay, SK3, uh, let's get rid of two. Two wasn't very good. It was based on ninjas. Nobody likes ninjas. They like wizards and space. Mm. It's still a weird game. It's pool, but there's a wizard. The art of this game was actually from a t-shirt, which can be seen in Roger Sharp's book from 1977 called Pinball on page 13. Really? So the backlash. 
Like the yeah. wizard dude. I'm all about interesting, strange, annoying facts here. So one of the one of the things when I was doing my research on Steve Kirk was that I also found from a play meter from uh, 1985, he really spoke about the creative crisis in coin-op at the time. And this is, again, we're jumping timelines around here a little bit. But in the 1980s, when, when sort of pinball was on its downturn, there was a big, you know, crisis at the time about creativity in pinball. We'll get into that maybe more in the Python Angelo episode that we've got coming up. But at the time... Steve Kirk worked for a company called Pinstar. And just give us just a quick breakdown as to who Pinstar was. Pinstar was the company that Gary Stern started after Stern Electronics went bye-bye. So Pinstar was a conversion-type company. They, they made, yes, Pinstar made conversion kits that you could use in older, usually like an older Bally game. Like if you had a Lost World which probably wasn't making much money anyway because it's Lost World, you could convert it to a different game using this kit. Yeah, so the most notable, I would say, game from Pinstar was um, from 1985 called Gamatron, which was uh, Steve Kirk's standard-bodied version of Harry Williams' very successful Flight 2000 machine. It was a space theme from 1985. It had a Bally Stern board set, surprise, um, and it also had a bit of a, a, an extra board that plugged into the computer unit that so converted it. Um, it has an unknown production amount. And uh, the art was done by Seamus McLaughlin, who we had heard about in our previous episode. Really, the, the here we go, going back into this sort of conversion kit or, or trade-in business model, right? Mm-hmm. It uh, it uh, modified most existing Stern games from the previous era, as well as the Bal- the Bally games at the time. The manufacturing flyer basically states it fits most standard body four-player Bally Manufacturing Corporation pinballs. And um, one of the major differences, I would say, between Flight 2000 and Gamatron was that Gamatron does not talk. I think if you mod it, though, if you actually had a soundboard, I believe it runs the same code. You could get it to talk. I'm trying to remember that. Yeah, so your your co-host on uh, Slam Tilt, uh, uh, Ben. Ben. Um, he has a Gamatron, right? Yes, he, he has a Gamatron. Uh, another thing about Gamatron, they didn't just make them for U.S. market. They actually made kits for foreign markets. Okay. I got to play... Uh, it was either Italian or Spanish Gamatron. The the play field, the, the art was a little different. Okay. And it had an SK-9. Nine? Wow. He designed a lot of games that didn't make it. Yeah, absolutely. So we're just jumping all over the place. Maybe he's just making it up. One of the cool bits, I think, with Gamatron on the back glass, it's awesome. Its art is awesome, in my opinion. It's got that really cool 1980s robot destroying the world thing going on. And it has a bunch of initials all over the place. So there are characters on there. There's an SK for Steve Kirk. There's an HW for Harry Williams. JJ for Joe Juice Jr. Gary Stern, GS, SS, Sam Stern. There's a uh, Seamus McLaughlin, SM. And that one's handwritten, almost like a signature on the back glass. There's also a couple of unknown initials on there is S-E-K-H. S, B, D, S, and A, F. We don't know who they are, but I'm assuming they were so important that IPDB just decided not to put their names on there. In 1988, he wasn't necessarily working for Williams, but he sold a game design, which would eventually become Swords of Fury, which is best known for what? 
Lion Man. Lion Man. It also has a Kirk post in the center. Does, which would be one of the signatures. As a as a consultant for Bally in 1988, he worked with Jim Patla, who designed Ramp Warrior under Steve's influence. Now, that didn't quite make production, because at around that time, Williams actually purchased Bally, which created then Bally Williams, and Ramp Warrior was made into a game called Truck Stop, and they had about 1,500 units were made of that. I would say Truck Stop is probably best known for its backlash and the fact that everybody in there was in a cold room. Yeah. Mm. So Ramp Warrior had SK-13 on the prototype. was a license plate on one of the trucks, and when it was changed over to Truck Stop, the license plate was still there, but it was laying on the ground all crumpled up rather than being attached to the truck. Symbolism? You could say that. Yeah. So um, through my research, and I think you could probably hear it here. All that research. That's so much research. That's like four pages of research. I actually found a couple of pretty interesting little points about Steve Kirk. One of them was that he became very much involved in pinball for one significant reason, and that was that he had a heart problem as a child, which meant that he could not play sports. So because he had a heart problem, he ended up playing pinball and hanging out. Do you have anything else to add about Steve Kirk? Uh, I like to think Steve Kirk was three for three. That's how I call him. He's the three for three man. He did three designs, and they were all awesome. I mean, Gamatron, Gamatron is the repurposed design. I actually think Gamatron plays better than Flight 2000. I've heard that. And as far as Swords of Fury, I think a lot of that, there are parts of him in there, but I think that also was reworked a lot. I don't consider that a true full all-out Steve Kirk design. Yeah, so I think Steve Kirk is probably one of those people that everybody's kind of heard of, but I don't think everybody really appreciates necessarily what he has done, particularly for early solid state and and tournament pinball and and all of the the things that come around with that. And we'll, we'll dive into Steve Kirk kind of after he left Stern Pinball and kind of what he saw after that. And I'll sprinkle that through a couple of other episodes and Instead of deep diving it at the moment, because today's topic is stern pinball. But I did want to talk about um, Steve Kirk's passing. Matt Scienchetti, he wrote a great article uh, in Pin Game Journal from March of 2007. Steve Kirk passed away in September of 2006 from heart failure at the age of 61, which is uh, quite young at that age. And that would come from his uh, heart issue that he had. And I'll and I'll quote from the article here. I could tell that the best years of Steve's life were when he was designing and making pinball machines. You could hear the excitement in his voice. He could go on and on and on about the glory days of the industry, and I enjoyed hearing most of all about what he had to say in those times. At the time of Steve's passing, he had been living in a motel in Rockford, Illinois, and working at the Bank of America, MBNA's phone customer service department. I was a friend with Steve for about 10 years, and in the time, he had bounced back and forth between homelessness and just getting by. Steve lost most of his money he accumulated from pinball in a stock deal that went bad. There's actually a surreal moment that I had with Steve during the Pinball Expo of 2000 or 2001. He had called me because he wanted to check out Pinball Expo that year and he needed a ride. During this time period, he was homeless and living in a suburban shelter program while trying to find work in the area. P. 
People often have a stereotypical vision of the homeless. However, this certainly was not the way Steve conducted himself. He rarely, if ever, drank alcohol. He wore a regular button-up dress shirt and slacks and was well-spoken. If you didn't know his situation and ran into him at Expo, you would have thought he was just another industry big shot. The minute he walked in, tons of people recognized him instantly and started catching up on old times. At one point, he was asked to sign autographs at a table. So there he was, signing autographs of back glass artwork and talking to fans of his games, and no one realized at the end of the show... After he was done signing autographs, he would be going back to the shelter and trying to find a job the next day. Not many people who are homeless get to sign autographs or have fans tell them how much their work is enjoyed. Yet, for that night, Steve got to experience both, and I feel fortunate to have been there to witness it. How about that story? Yep. That's about two or three years before I started going to Expo, so I missed that. That's uh, you know, that's pretty sobering to to think that one of the greatest designers of all times fell on some some serious hard times, and I, I'm glad that we could pay homage to somebody like Steve Kirk on this podcast. If you'd like to read that article, I've included it in the show notes. Well, on to something I would say maybe a little less depressing. Memory Lane. Or Mammary Lane, if you've ever seen the back glass. Yes. This was, I believe, their their last game with the chime box before they went with their wonderful early soundboard. And this is also by Mike Kubin. And it's actually a good game. I, I, I enjoy Memory Lane. We have a um, local collector around here who has one. So around the, around the time I had seen the Flash that was up for sale, the same seller also had a, uh, a memory lane for sale. And uh, I was intrigued. I, I was um, in some ways almost desperate to uh, to play some pinball. And um, I considered buying it. Wonderful little game, right? It's uh, bowling themed or drive-in kind of car hop thing, right? Like your A&W. It's re- it's, yeah, it's going for a retro bowling vibe. It has a super, it's got a really cool shot on the left side where it's a spinner that leads to a saucer, which is pretty Yeah, neat. also in the middle of the field, if you've played uh, Bally Strikes and Spares, it's kind of got a little bit of that going on, right? Yeah, the rollovers. In yep. the middle, sort of the 10-pin the bowling rollovers in the middle. Kind of a neat little yep. game. I wouldn't say it was necessarily great. I wouldn't say it's bad. It would it would be maybe the, the B, B-plus of its time, right? Ah, uh, I like it. I don't love it. I mean, I wouldn't own one. Let's put it that way. Now, Sam Stern actually got to sign that play field, right? Very cool. Oh, he did? Uh, one of the one of the coolest Sterns, I think, around this time was certainly Electronimo. Horrible sound in general, but I thought it was one of the best lookers of its time. It's got some interesting art. It's got like a Pegasus lady thing going yeah. on. Very cool. We didn't really get into the art yet. But all their art was outsourced for Stern by Ad, Ad Posters, a company called Ad Posters. But a lot of the artists you would have heard of before, guys like Doug Watson, who did a bunch of stuff for Williams. There, there were a lot of pinball artists there that you would, would come out later. But they pretty much let them do anything they wanted. So at the time... Stern really outsourced a lot of that. Gottlieb did it as well. And they spent a lot of their time maybe giving some guidance to these folk at advertising posters. You can read all about them in the Pinball Compendium. 
And Stern much preferred to outsource the art. And a lot of those artists preferred working with Stern over Gottlieb because of the freedom they could get from Stern because they used a four-color process as opposed to Stern, which traditionally used sort of those old sort of lines and straight edges. I believe that backlash is also ripped off of something. That's not original. Yeah, I would say that those those uh, ad posters fellows usually went elsewhere for inspiration. Uh, yes, yes, you could say that. Well, the next game is actually a big deal, whether you like it or not. It's Wildfire, but it's a big deal because of the designer who was coaxed out of retirement by Sam Stern. That's right, and this, of course, is the legendary Harry Williams. Yeah, so this machine is a bit interesting because at the bottom of the playfield, it doesn't have those traditional slings where the ball comes down and hits the kicker. The kickers are actually in the mid-playfield. That's kind of interesting. Yes, and Harry Williams, during his time after he left his own company, he would do designs and send them in to Bally and Williams, but whether they made him or not, I mean, he wasn't there officially, so sometimes his game would games would get made sometimes they wouldn't if if you look at a list of the games he he's actually had that were produced you'll notice these gaps and and it's bizarre you'll see a couple games by williams a game by bally like what was going on here that's what was going on he would just submit these designs tons of them and most of them did not get made i mean he's always an innovator right if you're if, if, yeah. you can't just tell the guy you can't just say harry williams retire go play some golf go learn to cook you know, watch watch a whole lot of home and garden television. He's not doing that, right? No. To me, that was one of the one of the best things about Stern Electronics is they brought him back, and he got right back into it. No, no issue. I th- these were like his first solid state games because he had just done nothing but electromechanicals. But he had, he had no issues transitioning to solid state. So that's wildfire. Spelled fire with a Y. Yep, makes it fancier. Oh, and then we got the next game. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about maybe Stern's uh, version of licensing. Mm-hmm. Stern, I mean, I guess a lot of the others at the time, particularly your Gottlieb and your Bally's, they were really kind of diving into licensing. You know, you had things like Wizard, uh, Bally did Kiss, you know, some really sort of big bands. On the Gottlieb side, you've got their their association with Columbia Pictures. They're picking up things like Charlie's Angels, The Hulk, Spider-Man. You know, you know licensing kind of was a thing. And not to be outdone, Stern joins in the fray. Yeah, and they go for the biggest singer-songwriter of all time, Ted Nugent. The funny thing about this game is if you look at the back glass, and I don't have one in front of me here, and I can't remember, the the, the art, it has a credit to a magazine on, on it's either the back glass or the playfield somewhere. The, the, the magazine to give credit to was an adult magazine. Really? Yep. I mean, who's Ted Nugent? He's a singer-songwriter. He's a guitarist and a conservative political activist. He's uh, initially gained his fame in the early 70s from being in the band Amboy Dukes. 
1975, he started his own solo career. His first album, the self-titled Ted Nugent, was two times platinum, which is two million copies sold. At the time the Pinball Machine was released, Ted Nugent had three solo albums, some of the most popular songs on the radio, some of them still heard today. The only one that I know is Cat Scratch Fever, which you alluded to a moment ago, and it sucks. But it's a license. And he was involved. I've seen pictures of him actually playing the game at the factory with Gary Stern. Did it sell? Did it? Well, it sold 2,400 units, right? Eh, not exactly stars-like numbers. Now, the worst part about this machine is it actually used the SB100 soundboard. Oh, the sounds are terrible. So they went back probably because they had a few laying around the factory, sort of like your Iron Man by Stern machines. They're just sort of laying around in parts and you just slap them together and send them out the door, right? No. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, the next one, I would say probably one of, again, the bigger licenses they could have gone with, and that was Dracula. Really? Big license? Yeah. So actually, this was based on Count Dracula, And you'll uh, remember Count Dracula. He moved from the Carpathian Mountains in Transylvania, Romania to England in 1897. Now, this individual, he had a phobia about garlic, sharp sticks, and daylight. Now, the details about his early life are very, very hard to find. Some would say they're undisclosed, but as mentioned, he was in life the most wonderful man. He was a soldier, a statesman, and an alchemist. He had a mighty brain and, learning beyond compare, a heart that knew no fear or remorse. Now, he allegedly studied the black arts in Skolomance in Transylvania, where he later took up arms against the Turks across the Danube River. According to his nemesis, Abraham von Helsing, upon his death, he was buried in a great tomb in the chapel of his castle. Some say Dracula returns from death and lives for several centuries in his castle with three terrifying, beautiful female companions beside him. And that must have been a tough license to get. And you know what? It's all in the game. All of it. All of it. That whole story. Yeah, sure it is. It's in the game. That's a tough license. This was made by Harry Williams, and it's a pretty good game. It has a really cool plunge, right? So usually when you when you, when you you pull the, the plunger back, it shoots the ball up into the play field, it goes to the top, and in this era, it would bounce back and forth and usually fall into lanes, right? But not this one. Not this one. It comes all the way up and almost hooks around into a pop bumper. Actually, it hooks around into a dead bumper. Or if you do it right, it'll actually go right to the upper flipper where you can go at the uh, four bank on the top. It is, a, it is a really unique and very odd pinball machine. Has awesome play field art. Backlass is terrible, and it's always completely wasted on every Dracula I've ever seen. The Backlass Dracula looks like he is going to a hair club for a men meeting or something. He's, he's like going bald. It's it's not a very good Backlass, but the playfield art is excellent. The plastics are excellent. It's got every, the fire, skulls, all the kind of stuff you expect to see. He's got, a, I would say, probably one of the nicest fences I have ever seen on that Backlass. Gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Rod iron, very nice, very expensive. Count Dracula was a very classy person. And there's some lightning, or that might be the back glass, actually. He he spared no expense on his landscaping. Very nice. He's got his, the ladies are on the left side, too, eh? On a, some sort of staircase. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Good for him. Good for Count Dracula. 
one of the legends in our industry, by the way. Yeah. Who, Dracula yeah. or Harry? Or, or, Dracula. Or Dracula. Next game, we have Trident. Yes. Again, you'll notice Stern, they would settle into a lot of these one-word title games. That's why it was like Trident, Stars, Dracula. Yeah, they didn't want to get very convoluted. Yeah, I, I like it. They kept it simple. Yes. And, and Trident is some green dude, and I don't know what... I don't even know how to describe the back glass, but as typical with a lot of their stuff, it's it's out there. And this this machine, I've seen a few of these for sale um, in Ontario, and it's kind of got... It's got a lot of the same kind of flavors as, as previous Sterns, right? They were really big on these orbit spinners. So an orbit is the kind of outside top arc of a pinball machine. And one of the sort of most fun places to put a spinner or the target that, that flips around is on the outside of the game because you get a lot more kind of speed and a lot more angle to hit that. They really nailed that at Stern. I would say that the more spinners, the better. And Stern understood that. And they said, you know what? We're going two spinners on this game. And the other interesting thing about Trident from the tech side, it was the first game, I believe it's the first game by any manufacturer to use the programmable drop targets. Basically, it can drop them at will on its own, and they would use that a lot in upcoming games. Very cool. That's a bank of five targets, and it'll start with like two up, and you hit the two down, it'll reset, so like three of them are up, you hit them down, and then four of them are up, you get it. It's a fun-looking machine, little bit different. Again, it's not overly um, complex, it's not overly exciting, but it is a bit different than everybody else. One of the, I mean, I guess one of the big differentiators of this machine is on the left side, there's no in-lane and out-lane, there's only an in-lane, which is kind of interesting. Uh, following Trident. Yeah, speaking of interesting, we have Hot Hand by Harry Williams, which has this crazy, huge rotating flipper at the top of the game. Yeah, so this is this is this is unusual. Let's just put it that way. But again, it's Harry Williams doing what he does. There is a large, like I'd say, twice as long as a regular flipper. It rotates, and there's several like saucers. Where your ball can go in and it spots you different things. It's actually not a bad game. I mean, I guess this is, you know, when you're not a Bally, when you're not a Gottlieb, you know, you can try different things, right? Like, it's not like you're worried about upsetting the formula. So this is a great example of a way of of, of trying something because, you know, you might come up with the greatest innovation of all time. You never know, right? Mm-hmm. So after Hot Hand, we have a game that probably most people have not seen called Cosmic Princess. I've never even heard of that. It Only 336 were made, and it's an export. It was made in Australia. They were se- assembled in Australia. They were sold by Leisure and Allied Industries under license by Stern. Huh. And it definitely it looks like a Stern, plays like a Stern. It was just made in Australia. So you do see these in Australia. You'll notice this on the Internet Pinball Database, where a lot of them will talk about the LAI's version of that game, which is really the export into Australia. Stern exported a lot to Australia. Now, this is where we get into games like Magic, uh, Meteor, and I think probably one of the more notable ones beyond Steve Kirk's Meteor is Galaxy, designed again by Harry Williams. This is the game that Keith Elwin regrets selling. It's an M200 MPU, sold 4,947 units. Very, very cool design, in my opinion. 
It's good. Have you ever played a galaxy? Have I ever played a Yes. I have played every single CERN, except Laser except Laser Lord. <laughs> Why don't you have a galaxy in your collection? Uh, it's okay. Are you saying that Keith Elwin, the greatest pinball player of all time, and let well, some would say the best up-and-coming designer of all time is wrong? Uh, no. You heard it here, folks. Ron Hallett hates Keith Elwin. Oh. <laughs> when we get back onto the licensing train... Ali is the last major license that Stern would land. Now, this is based on Muhammad Ali, or Cassius Clay Jr., who was the American professional boxer. He was nicknamed the greatest, and he's widely regarded as one of the most significant and celebrated sports figures of the 20th century and one of the greatest boxers of all time. He was best known as one of the greatest trash talkers. He was a Muslim convert and a philanthropist and a civil rights activist in the 1970s. He was also a huge pro wrestling fan. That's where he got a lot of his, basically he's cutting promos on other boxers. Yeah, he knows that he has to sell tickets, he has to sell the event, and people are going to want to pay to come, and he really learned that from professional wrestling. By 1980, around the time this machine was released, Ali was really starting to suffer from trembling hands, verbal stutters. He lost his match in October of 1980 to a stoppage. He was later diagnosed with Parkinson's disease in 1984. Even in this advanced age in his career, Ollie was still a massive brand. And to get somebody like him to partner with your company must have been a big deal at the time. Yeah, he's on the flyer too. By on the flyer, I mean he actually came in and they did a photo shoot. It wasn't a stock photo. This picture of him with the game, like in his trunks. Yeah, and and we're talking pretty close to 3,000 units here, so it sold okay for the most part. But we're getting into that sort of transition period into the 1970s, into the 1980s, where um, sales weren't quite what they were on a consistent basis, because we have so many players in the industry, right? We've got Bally, we've got Gottlieb, we've got Stern, and it's it, you know you're diluting the market at this point. And the production runs were fairly short for Stern, as we'll as we'll see on a lot of these upcoming games, like an upcoming game such as Big Game, another Harry Williams game. So I actually uh, posted in the Pinball Network thread on Pinside at Pinside.com for comments about games and topics about Stern Electronics, so I could include some of those comments. And I listed a few games on there. One of the games I neglected, Ron, and I know you're disappointed in me, was Big Game. And I got a lot of messages regarding this game that I had left out of that list. So Chuck Wirt, one of the streamers here on the Pinball Network, said, You forgot the best game of the bunch, Big Game. Well, Ken also yelled at me and he said, No conversation is complete without mentioning their first wide-body game, Big Game. Big Game has become my favorite wide-body pin due to its varied flowy for a wide-body and rewarding shots. The effective use of four flippers, unique jungle art package including the amazing and intimidating growling tiger head on the back glass and the fun digital sounds from the era. It also features multiple valid scoring strategies for competitive play that makes it a favorite in league play. I have let everybody down by not mentioning Big Game. Yeah, they also didn't mention, it has the wonderful red on the back glass that always completely dissipates. So your your uh, tiger's tongue is just transparent. Yeah, built on the cheap. 
Yeah, the, the, the back glasses are almost trashed, almost always trashed on this one. But the other interesting thing is, and maybe someone can correct me on this, but at least the little blurb I have here says that this was the first game with seven-digit scoring. Wow. Which they did advertise because they would count. I hope nobody just took their car right off the road here listening to this podcast. That's a big deal. That's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, yes, I, I have a big game. It's a great game. What, so when they talk about the varied scoring, like I've never played a big game. I don't like wide bodies in general because you, I find... You need, the, you need to change your mind on that. You need to play a stern wide body. It's different. It's different. It's totally different. Number one, it's not as wide. It's not as wide as like a Bally wide body. It's not wide as a Paragon or something like that. It's only, it's only a few inches wider. It will not play like a wide body. It will play super fast. So it, get any preconceptions out of your mind. So when I look at the play field here, I have an X and a Y and a Z. That's right, Z card. Um, and it's got, you know, one through nine. It's got lines and squares and circles. Like what is going on in the center of that? You try to field? fill the cards up. It is most basic. You try to fill the cards up. You get line bonuses for any lines you make. So like three down, three across three over like that's where the lines are so you get extra line bonuses you you also can spell big game light spinner hit spinner you have the wonderful four flippers at the bottom which are all to hit specific shots so you don't you can't scissor yourself on those right no you so, cannot scissor scissor yourself so scissoring for those who don't know is if there's two flippers on the right or left side and the flippers open up sometimes there's a gap in the bottom and in this in this game there are no gaps right it's solid it's solid and it's pretty easy to get used to the flippers on this, to be honest. But it's it's a good game. It's a really good art package, So surprisingly. Yeah, I, I didn't think they, yeah, it, but it's like jungle. When you look at it, it's very detailed. It's a very detailed art package. You see this? How big is your big game? Oh, with the flyer? Brilliant. Yeah, I love some of the flyers. The cheetah flyer is, is ridiculous. It, it's like, what does this have to do with the game? Now we're into May of 1980, and this is when we release Sea Witch. Sea Witch. Yeah, so we're talking Fantasy Sea theme. It's the M200 board set, 2,500 units. Um, Mike... Uh, Kubin again. Mike Kubin. Um, and now we're talking software by a fellow named Bill Futzenruder, who's a big deal. And uh, he'll be popping up a lot more sort of in the Williams days later on. Yes, he will. So, yes, this is Sea Witch. Sea Witch is the later re-themed Beatles. It fixes some of the limitations or some of the the annoyances with Sea Witch. Sea Witch has the the nice loop at the top that goes all the way around that you can hardly ever loop at all. Yeah, so I've there's a Sea Witch for sale not too far away from me, and it's for sale for uh, four thousand loonies. Uh, how much is that? Two bucks. Which, hold on, oh, you're so mean. So let me take a look here. So 4,000 beaver pelts. you got to take that by dog sled to Toronto. And then in Toronto, you got to take it down to, to Detroit. It's got to cross the river. Give me one sec. Then the Mountie's got to let you through. That's 2980 No, that's too much. That's no, too much. That's too much. I wouldn't do that. So why is it that Sea Witch is all of a sudden worth so much money nowadays? Ah. Uh... Besides you and uh, and Barry, the other guy on your podcast, raising the prices. I don't know. I mean, I, for people who wanted Beatles, but that was too expensive, so they got Sea Witch instead. Kent wrote in to silverballchronicles at gmail.com and said, Hey, Davey and Ronnie, I don't, like, what is with these? Uh, 
Ronnie, Ronnie's fine. Ronnie's fine. Are you going to talk about the Beatles? Keep on sleeping with that chicken. What? the hell does that mean i have no idea what that means maybe we'll dive into this whole beatles thing here so stern's the beatles it was released in november of 2018 it's a stern spike 2 system standard body they have 1964 units designed by mike kubin but redesigned by george gomez art by christopher franchi software by dean grover and sound by jerry thompson This is broken into three editions, the first one being the gold edition, 1,614 units, platinum at 250 units, and diamond at 100 units. Or as I like to call them, too expensive, really too expensive, and obscenely expensive. I really, really, really like the Beatles, but if you lay the Beatles down to Elvira, House of Horrors, or Deadpool Premium, or Batman 66, I'm sorry, I'm not choosing the Beatles. Yep. That's one expensive license. Yeah, George says, Joe Kamenkow and I did the overall concept for the rules of the game and collaborated on conceptualizing the game features. I felt strongly that it should be built on a simple single-level board from that era. We settled on Seawitch, even though it's from the 70s. Oh, okay, George doesn't know when the game was made, based on its popularity. So George Gomez thought that Sea Witch was made in the 70s. So it took uh, 10 years of relationship building between Joe Kamikow and the folks at Apple. And we're talking phone calls, gift baskets. Every year, you're giving the folks at uh, Apple a call. Now, rumor has it that this is the highest cost for a license ever at over a million dollars. Yeah, I believe that. Joe Kamikow says there's never been a license in pinball as expensive as the Beatles. We took a big risk to make this game. It's a specialty boutique product, which Stern does once a year or two. We had to do it right and make it different. Everything was sent to Apple in England, and when they were happy, it has to be taken to Proy. Proy stands for Paul, Ringo, Olivia, and Yoko. And it was the Beatles they envisioned and liked, so it was approved. When you're talking about Paul, Ringo, Olivia, and everybody's favorite Yoko Ono, you know, you're going to have to get everybody on side for something like that. And what they decided on... Joe, Gary Stern, and the group was that it had to be the Coming to America's Beatles, right? It had to be not the controversial Beatles that they would later become. Joe Kamikow, uh, the way he decided that they came to that was that he and Christopher Franchi um, started to get the proposal together with a backlash and cabinet art, and he wanted those Coming to America Beatles. This was the biggest era of the Beatles, and really the Beatles that the baby boomers would remember, uh, particularly the Ed Sullivan Show Beatles. So there were a bunch of uh, playfield changes, right, to the Sea Witch design? Yes, there was. George Gomez started with Mike Cuban's see which layout he made modifications to update and modernize it and fix the problems with the original from conversations with stern guys like keith ellen and zach sharp who knew the game very well they complained that see which top orbits were not accessible from the bottom flippers sometimes even from the upper flipper and it's it's supposed to be designed to have like a repeatable loop sort of like flash right yeah but it just you, doesn't work it doesn't work most of the time and the other thing about sea witch is primarily it's a drop target game you're trying to hit drop targets the spinner you hardly ever hit the spinner you hardly ever hit the loop it's about drop targets with beetles they made it so you can actually hit the loop so there's there's a reason to loop now there's a reason to hit spinners now because they added a second one I went to New York uh, City down to Manhattan for a portfolio manager meeting. Being in finance, you, you end up in New York from time to time. I went to Sunshine Laundromat in Brooklyn. 
and Modern Pintball over in Koreatown in Manhattan, and I played a Beatles at both. Do you think that I would also really like Sea Witch, or do you think Sea Witch would just make me angry? Uh, you would not. You would say Beatles is better. Why can't this be as good as the Beatles? Yeah. If you really, really want to see which buy the Beatles. <laughs> if you can afford it. Yeah. The the next game on the docket. Cheetah. Yes. I don't know if I'm really into games uh, with cheetahs on it. I have a bit of a cheetah phobia. I was once attacked by a cougar and uh, it was it was horrible. In Canada? Yeah. She was, she was 40, 45 year old. It was at a bar. I had too much to drink. Oh. Uh. Very good, very good. So why do you, besides trying to hyperinflate the cost of the machines in your basement, why do you like Cheetah? It's another great Harry Williams wide body. Actually, he did, I believe he did all the stern wide bodies except two of them. So he, he was on his wide body kick at this point. So this is his second second wide body in a row. And again, plays super fast, wide open play field, just tons of things to hit. And you, you just got to play it. Just feels great to shoot the shots. That could be said for most of the Sterns that are really good. It They just feel good to play. The shots just feel so good on these games. So at, at this time in Harry Williams' career, he's he's very much about geometry, right? Yeah, and in this game, you have a upper left flipper where you can sweep a five bank, all five targets. Well, I hope everybody was sitting down because that sounds amazing. Just did it two days ago. <laughs> Every once in a while when it happens, like, holy crap, I don't believe that just happened. Now, it also has a three bank target directly across from that top flipper. And that's for like multipliers. It has a grid with various grid awards. If you can get the, the lights in order and it has three other tar- It got another three bank way at the top, like as far back as you could possibly mount a Mac, but uh, that's cheetah. Another, another great game. Now released almost at exactly the same time is Quicksilver. Oh boy. Yes. Designed by Joe Jost Jr., who would uh, end up at Williams eventually. So this is like space theme? I don't know what it is. The The artists, uh, specifically Doug Watson, he took inspiration, and by inspiration I mean directly ripping off a heavy metal magazine cover, which is apropos now that Stern is going to be doing a heavy metal game. So I'll, I'll include a link to that magazine cover in the show notes, and... To be totally honest, the original magazine, I think, looks much better. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, it is not even a question whether it's directly ripped off, because it is directly ripped off. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess probably one of the best unsung, you know, pinball artists out there was certainly a Doug Watson. Oh, games like Terminator 2, I mean, everyone knows that backlash. That's iconic. Yeah, Doug Doug studied art at North Illinois University, and he half completed a master's before dropping out because he was broke and couldn't afford any more time. He created artwork for Pinball from 1979 to 1996, and he started with advertising posters, which we mentioned a little bit earlier. And through 1979 to 1982, he did most of the art for Stern and Gottlieb. This is where I would love to really touch on what made him a little bit different. As we had mentioned before, Stern sort of let you do whatever you want. Gottlieb was much more kind of stay within our box. 
which Doug Watson learned. When we get into some of our Gottlieb System 80 uh, conversations in a future podcast, we'll talk a little more about Doug Watson and the limits that were placed on him by Gottlieb. But when you're able to sort of sit back and say, you know what, I want to make a game and I want to use this heavy metal magazine, that's pretty, pretty cool. Ron, um, can we talk about penises? Ah, uh, I don't know. Is this the right show for that? This isn't the pinball show. This is Silverball Chronicles. But the reason we could talk about that is because they're all over this game. Are you sure they're actually penises, or are they supposed to be blobs of... They're supposed to be blobs, but once you see them, you cannot not see them. It's sort of like Gandalf's beard in Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, the Lord of the Rings LE, yes. It just, it just once you see that kind of hanging there, you just can't quite get it out of your... Out of your... Yeah. <laughs> and, and the game is very green. Very green. When you look at the original... Um, heavy metal magazine, which which he, he which Doug pulled the inspiration from. It was more sort of gray. It was a little more sort of devoid of color. And you could see that Doug Watson went for okay, let's add some some greens and some purples or some pinks. And the green the green does not do it for me. Doesn't do it for you. Huh? It it does not. It looks horrible. Well, don't worry. When this comes out as Led Zeppelin. I'm sure it'll have a different art package, and maybe you'll like it. Maybe. We'll see. But that's a big bet. That's also a rumor. Who knows if that's true? You own one, right? Uh, I own half of one, yes. So you own half of a Quicksilver with Ben. Ben. Yes, the other guy from Slam Tilt. Yep. Yeah. I'm looking at Pinside right now, which is sort of one of the major sources for buying and selling machines. A lot of the archived ads at the moment have this machine in the five to six to seven thousand dollar U.S. range for sales. Crazy talk! Why does this machine sell for more than a stern premium? Brand new box. Uh, it, it's awesome and it's rare. So is it? Is there? Is there something about this game that is just so amazing that you just have to have one? Besides, besides the penises, the sweeping, the center bank. If you, you sweep the center bank and hit the spinner all in one shot, what does sweeping a, a a set of drop targets mean? Basically, you hit; they all go down in one shot. You can kind of roll the 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 pinball kind of along along the the the, the bank, and they all fall down at the same time. Yep. And that's sort of a Stern staple, right? That was a thing that Stern sort of figured out. And they even had the certain games had sweep bonuses. If you sweep the target, you got extra like 5,000 points or something. Hmm. So, yes, even before Iron Maiden. I know Iron Maiden has a sweep bonus, the new Iron Maiden, but Stern was doing it back in the 80s. And actually, the aforementioned uh, Keith Elwin, the sweeping the targets to the left spinner shot, he called one of his favorite shots in early solid state pinball. So there you go. So the the next machine that Stern sort of ventured into uh, in August of 1980, so later on in the year, is Stargazer. And Ron, tell me about the amazingness that is Stargazer. You like spinners? I do. I do indeed love spinners. We got three of them, and they're all awesome. And it has the great feature upper left drop target bank. You hit one of the three targets, it locks in the value of the spinner. If you complete the bank, it'll start rotating again. So again, the you want to hit it, but you don't want to complete it kind of thing that Stern did on a lot of games that I love. Has a very unique flipper area. Does not have conventional in lanes. It has like little pockets 
with uh, rollovers that give you various awards, the pockets and the outlanes and just spinners. It's spinners, man. When it comes to the bottom third of that play field, now, it does not have that traditional Italian bottom. In summary, an Italian bottom is that it has out lanes that go around the flippers and into the into the out hole. It has in lanes that then feed the flippers, and it has... You know, usually a, a pop bumper or a sling or two slings or, or something in the middle. This does not have uh, slings in the bottom. It, oh, 100% has slings. But they're up higher, though, aren't they? Yeah, they're up a little higher, but they're still in the same sling area that you would call the sling area. I, I've never played a Stargazer because they only made, what, like like a thousand of them? They made like 800 of them. Yeah, so why did they... Why, if this game is so great... I knew this was coming. If this is so great. If it's so great, why did they only make 800 of them? Because of what the next game was. Well, what was the next game? It was going to be a wide body. It was going to be their first game with speech. It was going to be their first game with multi-ball. And it was going to be designed by Harry Williams. And that game is Flight 2000. Their second highest machine behind Meteor by selling 6,300 units. So they were they were all in on Flight 2000. So unfortunately, Stargazer had to be taken off the line. So they just they they were like, "Nope, we don't nope. need any of that. We need some of this Harry Williams. We got Doug Watson on on uh, on art here. We got Bill Futzenruder on software. We're done. We're we're jumping in here. And this is the first one to use the VSU 100 speech board. Does the countdown. Yep. And their speech in all their games pretty much sounds the same like the same voice and this has a spinner with a sweepable set of drop targets right yeah it does now there was one of these not too long ago for sale not too far from here it had a brand new cpr play field all rebuilt brand new boards gorgeous looking machine and it sold for ten thousand loonies two thousand u.s Sure. 2100 US. Now, why is it that something like Quicksilver with a bunch of penises and horrible green vomit sells for almost the same as a Stern Pro, but a machine that sold tons because it was probably a great machine has speech it's got probably lasers on it it's made by a legend harry williams it's got gorgeous art you answered your own question though it's got an amazing lock on the top they made a ton of them they made a ton of them that's why they're not hard to find there's lots of flight 2000s out there they made a ton of these all right that's why it's all supply and demand uh the multi-ball on this can be a pain you want to talk about newer rule sets Trying to explain to somebody how to get multi-ball on this thing. It's like, first, you have to actually hit the left spinner shot and lock two balls. Yeah, and then you got to count it down. You have to spell, you no, know, no, no, you have to spell blast off by hitting the lanes. And there's no lane change, so you can't... No lane change, yeah. Turn, you can't move that lit, those lit things around. Get, you have to get the in-lane lights, which means you better be able to alley pass, because that's the only way you're going to get a couple of them. But then the one the one you can't alley pass, so you're going to have to go through there eventually to get it. Then after you do all that, it'll say you're ready. Then you have to count down. So you have to count down 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 in order. And then when you do that, it's still not ready yet. you got to hit one more ball up in the lock to finally start multi-ball. Yeah, that does not seem... Fun. Very convoluted method, as opposed to something like, say, firepower. When we were talking about Steve Ritchie, where you just lock three balls and it starts. Way easier to understand. That's horrible. It's still fun. I haven't played one. I'll let you know. Okay. So that's when we get into nine ball into December. Next, we're moving into 1981. We've got Stern Freefall. 
Yeah. Never seen one of those ever. Yeah. Now's when we start. We start. Yeah. Starts getting a little painful. Free fall is. It's almost like a repurposed Flight 2000. They they use like the same mech. The same, I think the same ball lock or mech or similar. It has similar rule set where you try and lock balls and then spell something to start multi-ball. It has crazy artwork where basically there's women flying around commando. Literally, if you look at the back glass, when I said they did anything with Stern, I meant that. So so they wore uh, military fatigues and some sort of beret? No, not that No, not that kind of commando. But it was another wide body from Harry Williams again. It's not a bad game. It's not as good as Flight 2000. Oh, so then we move into a game called Lightning. Ugh. Ooh, that doesn't sound good. One of the few classic Stern games that I just hate. So this is when you can see the influence from the industry changing, right? The industry is very much again in flux. So when we move from electromechanical, we're moving into the solid state era, things are in flux and they're changing. We get into that early 80s, we're getting into sort of, you know, Black Knight territory. Now we're talking about multiple playfields, right? And this is Stern's first stab at a multi-level playfield. Yeah, it sure is. <laughs> so so this is one of the classic Sterns that you haven't been able to find because it's so popular, right? Uh, I wouldn't say that. Actually, I've seen a lot of them. It has crazy back glass where it almost looks like there's a nipple on it if you look at it. It's it's insane. I, I It's just crazy. It has an upper playfield that you may stay on for three seconds before you lose it. It's extremely difficult to stay up on the upper playfield on this game, which is not, not a bad thing. I don't mind that, but the whole rule set of this game, at least in my opinion, is, is painful. It has, but it has, they put everything in this game. They pack this sucker. It has, by level, it has an extra display in the center of the playfield, like a little, you know, digit four or five digit display in the center it has speech and multi-ball but multi-ball this is how you start multi-ball the locks are on the upper play field neither is really completely shootable they literally just fall in half the time and then you have to hit one of like nine stand-ups get them all to start multi-ball yeah and it's 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 like a it's like a fantasy god of lightning thing going on yeah like norse mythology yes it's it, it has the speech is like thor thunder god or whatever it says yeah the wheels are kind of starting to come off here right like it's it's it seems like it's all over the place they put everything in this game everything's in this game all out i mean when you're trying to compete with something like a black knight which when we when we talked about this in our last episode about how much research kind of went into that and and how much time and effort that a Steve Ritchie, you know, granted one of the greatest minds of pinball ever, spent on trying to perfect an upper playfield. And then you kind of have, you know, Joe Juice Jr. just kind of throwing this together to try to compete with that. And the thing is, they're also competing with they're competing with video games at this point. So they got to they got to pack more and more stuff in these games. So how do you how do you combat maybe a lackluster two level playfield? You do another one. You double down, right? And you go with split second, which is a wide body. So now we're doing wide body by level game. Let's hurry again into the stats. <laughs> hurry, 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 hurry. We're talking August of uh, 1981. You said it, wide body M200 board set. It's got the most annoying speech of all time. Hurry, hurry. It literally will say that. Hurry. It just, 
over and over. But it does say a lot over. of other things. It, it's a circus theme, and it will say, you know, welcome to the whatever. It's, it says a lot of different things. That's the one that gets stuck in everyone's heads. So this is a much better, this is a much better kind of kick at the can, right? Like the upper play field is fun. It's not, it's not a bad game. It's, it's kind of got game. like a, a high wire plank ball trapeze thing. That's kind of fun. Another Harry Williams design. You know, this guy, he just he just keeps, I mean, it's not his greatest game, but it is definitely better than the one that preceded it and the one that will follow it, right? Oh, no, Catacomb. I, I like Catacomb. Yeah, so Catacomb is a great game if you like toast. So with Catacomb, again, we have, we have speech, we have multiball. It's the last turn game that actually has artwork on the uh, cabinet for the game. Mm. They will they will cheapen out on future releases. One of my favorite pinball artists outside of Christopher Franchi or Zombie Yeti is Larry Day. And this was his first pinball game that he did the art for. And I think he did a lot of really kind of fun, cool art through his career, even though they're on, let's say it, kind of some of the crappiest games yeah and catacomb no one understands the back box rules yeah there's like a bagatelle in the back yep and it gives you instructions it talks it tells you exactly what to do it, it gives you spoken instructions on what to do it has two ball locks neither of which are really accessible to shoot they bounce off the pop-uppers and lock that way and you're trying to complete remember big game trying to complete bingo cards here you're trying to complete it's supposed to be the catacomb it's supposed to be like a it's like a hallway or something but it looks like a big piece of toast it is just the worst i like it oh the problem is in tournament play you plunge the correct lane i think it's the rightmost lane you want to get it in which lights the spinner and then you just hit the spinner repeatedly and ignore everything else so if you ever play in a tournament, that's what you need to do. Yeah, it's it's almost like there was a bit of a, we got something here, and this is kind of what we want to do, but they, they just, maybe too many cooks in the kitchen, or... Eh, it's a more cerebral game, and people don't like to think. Yeah, I mean, at the time, right, it, it might be a bit too much. I know Gottlieb had a game called uh, Time Zone, and it was very weird that way, right, when it came to really odd rules. I think at the time... People still really liked sort of spinners and interesting locks. They didn't like maybe complicated rules. Then we have the next game. Iron Maiden. No, not that one. Not the good Iron Maiden. The one with the crazy back glass, which is the thing you remember about it. It has a weird, like, pulsating light in the back glass. The thing I remember most about it. It's it's a wide body, bi-level, multi-ball. First wide body, not by Harry Williams. Oh. It does have really cool art. It has really cool art, and it's just not good. They did not. I think most of these ended up being exported. Really? Yep. And this was done by, uh, the art is done by a fellow named Keith Parkinson, and he did Iron Maiden, Crawl, and Viper, everybody's favorite pinball machines of all time. Wow. Another interesting factoid about Stern is they're actually owned by Seaberg. It was part of the part. So when you see those S's on those classic Sterns, the S that you see on the drop targets, everyone mm-hmm. thinks that's Stern. It's not. It means Seaberg. It's a <gasps> S. Yeah. Oh. And the other thing I, I forgot to mention, I'll throw it out there. Starting with Stargazer, they started to use the, the block, like Stern logo, that they would use all the way up, like when they restarted Stern. Yes. 
all the way up till they changed it to what it is now with the uh, where it has the little flipper thing on it and all that. But if you look at the logo on Stargazer, on Stargazer, that Stern logo is the same one you'll see like on Spider-Man, Elvis, you know, all those games. I always thought that was interesting. After Iron Maiden, then we get to Viper. And uh, another thing, Iron Maiden and Viper, they do not have any cabinet art. It literally just says Stern. So again, cost cutting. Doing it on the cheap. Yeah, by the, this time, video's winning, pinball's dying, Viper is crazy. You want to talk about crazy artwork? You want you want to put nudity on the backlist and get away with it? Make it metal, because that's what they do. They have a topless woman, snake woman on the backlist, but she's metal. So somehow they get away with it. Crazy yeah, it's, it's it's got like this robotic theme going on. Yeah. It's got uh, again orbit spinner on the left side, triple flipper. It's kind of almost got an inner loop. But the thing of all gimmick of the game though is the turret in the center, in the top center of the game. There's the turret. You load a ball in the turret, and it spins full 360 all the way around. You can fire at anything you want. There's extra buttons on the side of the cabinet. One is the fire button. One is the reverse. You can make it go either way. Wow. Yep, and the whole game is designed around that turret. There are shots you can only hit with the turret. Is it as much fun as it sounds like? Um, I've warmed up to it. It's not one of their greater efforts, but trying to get you're trying to get all the different arrows by hitting with the turret, and it increases a multiplier on the play field. So you go from like no scoring to insane scoring if you can do it. So they so they're small and nimble enough that they can just kind of throw anything at the wall and see if it works, right? And that's a it's great pretty much. Yeah, and it has multi-ball also. I guess after that, the best one that we can re- like the the last two that I want to talk about. Maybe there's a couple more that you want to talk about. Oh yeah, we got to go into Laser Lord. I guess we could talk about Dragon Fist. Yes, this is their last conventional size regular I would call pinball machine. In typical fashion of using a license without using a license. It has Bruce Lee on it, but they put a headband on him. Is it actually Bruce Lee? It's Bruce Lee. Or is it just... Uh... It's Bruce Lee. It's Bruce Lee. They put a headband on him because Bruce Lee never wore a headband, so it's obviously not Bruce Lee. But on the playfield artwork, it's totally Bruce Lee. And it's another JoJo's game, and it's awesome. Now, you have one of these. I do. Now, what makes it so awesome besides the fact that you have one? Um, it's just the speed. So it's a it's a really tight, fast play field. I only have one game that plays faster than this. Remember, I have a lot of newer games too. I only have one game that plays as fast or faster than this, and that's TNA. Would you say that because you've got that series of drop targets kind of a bit lower on the play field, or? Uh, it's just the way it's designed. It's all loops. The way you hit the shots, everything is built around generating as much speed as possible. Very cool. It's just obscenely fast. I have it has the best spinner. I, I get I could get sixty seventy spins a rip on the spinner on the right. But, uh, why do you think it didn't sell? Because they were dying. So we'll get into that. They're just busy a making video games. Yeah, they're they're dying at this point. The software of this, just from someone I I know who's decompiled and working on it, it has so many. It has abandoned features in it, and it's a complete mess. They were obviously just trying to get this out the door and get it done with. Yeah. So at around 1980, so we're you know when we move into that that time frame of sort of Cheetah, Quicksilver. Uh, Flight 2000, we, we really ramp up around that period in 1980, and then it's almost like the wheels come off in 81. Pretty much. Almost immediately in, in January of 1981, and a lot of that comes from, and you said it, Stern's kind of motion more into video. 
And I've included a link in the show notes to the Stern Wikipedia page where it talks a little bit about their pinball machines, but it also lists their video game machines. In 1980, Stern released Astro Invader, um, which is uh, actually programmed by Konami. And that was very much sort of a Space Invaders kind of knockoff. That machine sort of started, I would say, an odd shift in the business model that they had at Stern. As they kind of got that first taste of manufacturing arcade games, they created Berserk in 1980. And Berserk became just an absolute smash hit for Stern. They sold 37,500 units, which when you look at selling 2,000 pinball machines, that is an astronomical number, isn't it? That it is. So you can see the allure of this low overhead machine, right? It's got a cabinet, it has the monitor inside, and it's got one board and a couple of joysticks, right? It doesn't have solenoids, it doesn't have stolen technology from Bally, it doesn't have all these moving bits and pieces. It's very straightforward, right? So this is where that sort of love affair that Stern had with video, and it's almost like they took their eye off of the ball, right? I would too. It's way more profitable. That's the you know they're they're a company. Got to stick around. That's what's going to take to survive. Yeah. So then this is where really the double whammy comes into uh, the industry, right? All of a sudden, video takes a nosedive. People aren't playing video games as much as they are anymore. Pinballs now sort of declined as well with the arcades in this time. So now we're talking 1983. We're getting into some tough times in the industry, right? Yeah. This is a glut of video games at this point. There's just too many games. Just too many manufacturers, too many games, too many arcade games, too many pinball companies. The pressure starts to build, right? They've they've moved out of that. I would say the real beginning of the end was the fact that Stern and Video ended up in a bunch of lawsuits. Um, and I've added one to our show notes, which is Stern Electronics Incorporated versus Kaufman where they actually were sued for the underlying source code for a lot of the video games that they made. And this is really the spiral that sort of ended the company. Not Orbiter 1? Well, they. Tr- where do I put Orbiter 1 in, really? That, that train wreck of a pinball machine. Stern came out with Orbiter 1, another wide body, which if you've ever seen it... This is where they're trying to save the company. They're trying something crazy. And Gary Stern, remember this, he, he's, he had it... There was an interview recently where he brought up Orbiter 1. Like, yeah, we tried something crazy there. It has a play field that looks like the moon. It is not flat. And the ball just goes all over the place. You would think there's magnets, but there are no magnets in this game. And the thing is, it uses some newer technology in that it has these spinner things in the center of the play field, two of them. And they actually use uh, like an opto. Interesting. So when you hit it, when you hit it, it slows down the spinner and the opto detects it. And that's how it, it gets gets the hit. And it has multi-ball and speech. And it's insane. It is. The ball will go behind the flippers and it, the, the plunger is so low in the cabinet like it's it's you got to reach down to 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 plunge the ball the game actually has a light there flashing just so you know where it is shoot pinball it's crazy it's it's something else this whole video game thing that they're doing kind of 80 81 82 83 the last thing that they really try is i i forgot about the q c u e 
It was my Harry Williams, his last game. There was actually one on location by me. There was one of like six or seven made. They put it out on test, and the location called Stern and asked for them to take it back. Oh, my. Yes. It is a very bizarre. The flippers face the other way, and you hit the ball up, and it hits a bunch of bumpers, and it's it's wild. It's a crazy game. has a huge magnet in the center of the play field. What are they doing, Ron? Anything. They went they went from meteor and big game and stars and Ollie and Hey, anything you can. They are just flailing. Probably sometime after it might have even been after Viper. More around the time they're doing Orbiter One. Because Orbiter One I think was outsourced. It was designed originally by someone else and they brought it in and finished it. They were working on Laser Lord, which was to be a wide body. And it never really got too much past a Whitewood. Fast forward to 1984. The last, what's left of Stern is still there, and they decide to take a game to one of the amusement shows. So they have these flyers printed up, and these flyers exist, and they said like Laser Lore, the future of pinball, or whatever. You know the usual flyer, flyer nonsense. And what they did is they took a Quicksilver and they rethemed the artwork and made it into Laser Lord, and they brought it to the show, hoping nobody would notice. And there was one made. It still exists. It sold on eBay a few years ago. That would have been the end of the Laser Lord story. However, just a few years ago, somebody in uh, Michigan, I believe, they were, uh, I think it was a plumber, they were doing a service call at someone's house, and they noticed they had this pinball machine. No. And it was the Laser Lord Whitewood, the original Laser Lord, Laser Lord Whitewood that Joe Joe's had mocked up. So he, he bought it, and it eventually went to a collector who got it working, and they were supposed to bring it to a show or something, one of the Michigan shows. I don't know if it ever made it, but it, it would have had multi-ball. It had some crazy, like, a ton of stand-up targets, if I remember. Or maybe they were drop targets. It, w- it was a crazy-looking play field. It was a wide body. It was in a Viper cabinet. Wow. And that, that, yeah, and that was just discovered a few years ago. I'm looking at the flyer that you mentioned here. It's, it's on the uh, Internet yep. Pinball Database, and it says, yep. Stern Pinball is back. Mm-hmm. Old-style excitement with challenging features and solid-state technology is Laser Lord. And it says features. Oh, this is exciting. Pop bumpers, bonus multipliers, advanced features, special bonus, spinners, kick-out targets, center banks, and extra ball. In other words, any other game. A pinball machine, yeah. basically. Yeah, they they had laid off their uh, marketing department by the looks of it. You know, it's sad to sort of see that we had this stretch, I would say, between, you know, late 78 to mid 80, end of 1980 with maybe nine ball with Steve Kirk's nine ball. And then it was just like falling down a set of stairs with rakes at the bottom. But they left us a great legacy of awesome games. In 1985, Stern Electronics left the amusement industry. Gary Stern finally declared bankruptcy over the whole ordeal. As we know that this wouldn't be the end of Gary Stern, he's always been a fighter. He's always been a striver in the industry. And I'd like to assume that he either has a massive fear of failure or he doesn't like to fail because the personnel from Stern Electronics, actually moved to a venture called Pinstar. We spoke about that during the Steve Kirk section. And they started producing conversion kits for old Bally and Stearns. And it wasn't too long after that that Gary Stern and Joe Kamenkow would convince a Japanese company called Data East to create a pinball division. And man, that's a totally different podcast. So there you go. There's episode two, Ron. Any thoughts? 
Uh, if you see an old Stern, play it. They're awesome. They have a different feel than any other manufacturer. I mean, every manufacturer has its own feel. I mean, most of the play fields, especially when they get into their really golden era, every play field's totally different. They're totally different experiences, totally different looking play fields, but they still play like a Stern. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of the conventional sort of crutches that some of the other pinball manufacturers had. First time I ever played Stearns or saw any of them, one of my first pinball expos, they had a row of them, and I'm looking at them, it's like, yeah, that looks like a Bally, because they have the bigger flippers. Yeah. So I figured, like, oh, it's a Bally. And then I play these things, like, wow, this is not Bally. They had the orbit spinner down, and they had maybe an extra layer of, of rules down that some of the other manufacturers just didn't. They had speed down, I'll say that. Go to a pinball show. Find some Sterns. Go play some classic Sterns. They're a lot of fun. Play a Stars. You'll see what all the fuss is about. Uh, Sarah wrote to me on Pinside and said, Hey, love the first episode. But it would be cool if you told us what the next episode was about so we could write in with some comments. Keep up the great work. Cool. You can tell me. Yeah. Well, Sarah, our next episode will be titled... Zombie Pinball, The Death of Gottlieb, and the System 3 Era. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. I have to talk about Premiere Games? Yeah, I'm so sorry. And remember, as always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to our mailbag at... Oh, this changed. Silverballchronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all the messages, and we read every one. Remember to leave us a five-star review wherever you can to help others find us. I have it after Quicksilver for some reason. I think it's because I wanted to talk about penises.